As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. The founder of the Taiwanese chip giant TSMC was in Arizona recently with President Biden celebrating the opening of a chip plant and said globalization and free trade are almost dead and unlikely to come back. What's your reaction to that? I would have to disagree. Um, I don't think that globalization and free trade are, are dead. Aidan Madigan-Curtis, partner at Eclipse Ventures. I do think we're entering a pretty different era, one where um, the interdependencies of supply chains have been extremely highlighted and the enhanced political risks, uh, you know, we've been talking about geopolitical risk between countries. I actually think there's some really interesting domestic political risks. Subscribers will remember I interviewed Aiden, who's a former Apple factory executive who knows China well, just a few weeks ago about China and trade, but I asked her back because so much has happened in the weeks since. Widespread and sometimes violent protests rocked China as Chinese citizens objected to the CCP's draconian COVID policies. And then the strangest thing happened. The government relented. Since we last talked, uh, this wasn't really on our radar in our conversation, was uh, the zero COVID policy in China, which then turned into just tremendous uh, demonstrations that we hadn't seen in many, many years. Um, China has since reversed itself. I think they're calling it the, let me see, the new situation is what uh, they're calling it. But the new situation comes after big protests, uh, which which to me, if I'm watching from within, China says, hey, protests work. Um, Is there some sort of sea change there that, that people can say, hey, you know what we did? That worked. And the government listened. Yeah. They actually do think it's one of the most um, shocking and intriguing things to happen in the world in the last couple of decades. Uh, China simply doesn't have these types of widespread protests. The the thing that was really fascinating about it was that it's it was not highly organized, but semi-organized. People were getting the word out. And um, whether it was via Telegram or dating apps or VPNs, uh, they found a way to organize and coordinate. And one of the most interesting concepts was the blank sheet of paper. You know, the words can be traced. 
and targeted. Uh, but it's harder to figure out what's going on if the message being shared is one of... Um, if one I, that's I so really, simple. I admire that, the, yeah. the, the cleverness of it. There's a... Uh, I read that uh, that some of them were singing the national anthem, which has a line in there about not being slaves. And you know what they mean. But then again, who, you can't arrest people for singing yeah, the national anthem. prosecute people for, for singing your, your country's anthem. Agree. Um, so I think it just goes to show that where there's a will, there's a way. And, um, you know, whether it's a combination of a new generation in China that uh, has had some of the educational and, and growth benefits um, that benefits from all sorts of forms of technology to communicate that, uh, you know, in some ways have outpaced government censorship and controls. Um, and just an overall, uh, you know, so much of protest historically has started on college campuses. It's the, you know, it's the spirit and the vim and the vigor, I think, of being, you know, 18 to 21 and wanting to have your voice heard. And maybe in some respects being um, too innocent to know how dangerous it can be and uh, a bit naive about, you know, the desire to be heard, but also the consequences. Um, so I thought that that was a really incredible thing because you saw protests um, with similar themes and concepts break out over nine different cities. Um, and yeah, that certainly, I think, sent a message um, to, to the party. And I think that what we've not seen is a China where um, the party doesn't have that kind of ultimate control, where there may be, um, you know, if, if protest is used as an effective tool, not only once, but again, and further and intensified to force changes, that that creates a lot of unrest and disruption to a system that has been fairly predictable historically. So if you are a business owner thinking about, you know, we've just talked about moving supply chains out of China, but insofar as you're someone still thinking of doing business in China, can you count on um, the types of economic policies and the types of um, sort of social and uh, so societal structures that you've been able to rely on in the past and sort of human policies, et cetera, to build your factories and have them run in a certain way? Can you rely on the relationships you've built with the government uh, forces that have been in control to continue to help you kind of get through your business in a productive way. So I think that just from like a business perspective, it's interesting to think about a China under transition, um, let alone kind of beyond business, what that might mean if, you know, she isn't able to sort of take that control that he just consolidated and actually execute it uh, on a global stage because um, the people themselves may actually be pushing for change. Are you saying that, you know, I mean, there's the reason to move your chip plant out of China, and that is, uh, you know, the what's gone so badly wrong in world trade and free trade. But also, are you coaching caution because we don't know the future stability of the central Chinese government? What I would say is that it's way too early to take a look at the protests that happen and say, well, you know, sh she's, uh, goose is cooked. Because I actually think if you look at what may play out from here, there's um, numerous different potential outcomes. Step one of, you know, people protesting successfully in a semi-organized way across multiple places in China and the Chinese government responding by changing national policy, not just local local policies, national policies, you know, in a very what seemingly reactive way. Um, that may lead to the thought process that you said, you know, okay, I, now I'm in China and I think if I don't like something, I can push for it. And if I'm unhappy, like they were singing in 
the streets of Shanghai and about Xi Jinping or some of his policies that they may actually be able to organize and foment change. The flip side of the equation is, um, so they got what they were asking for, but be careful what you wish for because uh, China's population, while being um, sort of on paper vaccinated, uh, has been vaccinated with the Chinese vaccines and um, actually a lot of the elderly population, there's some questionable stats around it, but you know, there's double digit percentages that haven't quite been fully vaccinated. And so there's a question of just how bad it's going to be um, and what she's come back to that might be like, okay, well, this is what you were asking for. Now we have a health crisis and this is because you protested, right? So it's a really interesting chess game that may play out. And if you're in she's position thinking, how do I respond to this? If I clamp down harder, you know, now that we've seen that they can organize, doesn't that actually just make people angrier? And doesn't that, you know, create further risk versus saying yes? And then if there's a bad outcome, saying, well, this is, you know, this is this is what you get when you push back. Let us manage, you know, society, manage the economy, manage our health and um, other policies because we're doing what's best for China. So I think we're in early innings of it, but I do think it's really fascinating to think that the kind of ironclad um, domestic control that the party has had may be in a in a new era. You were an Apple executive working on manufacturing in China. So as you answer this question, people should understand you're not speaking for Apple, but you're speaking with the experience of Apple. What am I to read into Apple saying that it's going to source its chips, more of its chips, uh, from places like the new fabs in Arizona once they're they're built. Is that, you know, sort of a we're responding to America first sort of thing? Is that a message sent to the Chinese or is it a strategic move? Yeah, to your point, I um, I couldn't pretend to say that I have any context for, you know, Apple today and their decision-making. But I think certainly... Apple, like any country has, or any company has, hey, you know. <laughs> Apple, like any company, has an interest in um, pursuing its its targets as a company, including you know bringing more profit back to its shareholders. Uh, Apple's also set some pretty aggressive ESG and just sort of sustainability and climate um, targets. Everything from their recycling program to how they think about their overall carbon footprint. Insofar as they can source key components and parts from onshore or nearshore, um, that's definitely going to be helpful to their bottom line, uh, provided that the technology being used is actually, um, you know, advanced in such a way that they're able to get more throughput, you know, less input for more output. And insofar as it's close enough that um, it can be also sort of carbon reductive when you think about how much carbon is generated by uh the materials and then the parts and then the sub-assemblies and the assemblies essentially like flying and moving their way around the world. It actually really doesn't make a ton of sense um, unless it's sort of just been the way things have been. So uh, I definitely see why um, I definitely see why there's a real strategic interest in Apple doing that. I also think that COVID um, and then all of the kind of corresponding risks that have popped up in the last couple of years have shown us that when you don't have supply chain redundancy, uh, you really do face a, a stack of risks to your revenue um, that are unwise for companies to allow. And I think, you know, in in the first experience of COVID and those shockwaves, no one could really blame um, companies for not having uh, reduced those supply chain risks. They really hadn't been at the fore. Um, but in a kind of a fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me mentality, uh, it would seem almost... Um, 
you know, either incredibly naive or or almost neglectful to not be really thinking through supply chain strategies today and how to diversify those risks. Apple's Tim Cook was also at that ceremony with President Biden in Arizona and says Apple will buy more chips made there for its phones and computers. Thanks to the hard work of so many people, these chips can be proudly stamped made in America. As for China and COVID, new estimates from the Chinese CDC predict as the lockdown ends, 800 million Chinese will likely fall ill, a number nearly two and a half times the population of the United States. Those same estimates predict a half million will die. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.